Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. We try so hard. It's the first one. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's go. This is it. This is the beginning of Campfire Classics. And appropriately enough, we are recording this in the middle of a rainstorm. Oh, it's so delightful because we're going to read a mystery and it's like gray and rainy and we've got candles lit because we can't be around the campfire because it's raining. Yeah. But we would still read this around the campfire because that's actually how this got started. Like, we would, we met in grad school and then like... We went camping a few months later, and we had an assignment from our voice teacher to, like, read more out loud, because that was good for our voices and our training. And it's fun. And it's fun. And it's, it's like, ooh, let's read around the campfire when we go. And we were at a used bookstore in Kansas City, and we found a collection of Agatha Christie, like, short stories. And I was like, I've never read any Agatha Christie. And you were like, what? Yeah. Well, and I hadn't read much, although I was familiar with, you know, some of the big ones. Yeah, and but... I really didn't even know any of them, but I always... It was always one of those things where I'm like, I should read those, because I like mysteries. But, you know, they're just the books that you see on your grandparent shelf. Um, and so we did it, and oh my god, we read, like, the entire collection of short stories on that two-day camping trip. We spent the entire time, and it's become Sitting a... around a campfire... Reading weird mysteries. Yeah. Many of them were Poirot. Yes. Um, with lots of French words that Heather can't pronounce. I'm so bad. Like, <laughs> I, I speak really good English sometimes. Uh, and other times my mouth doesn't work and my, like, number dyslexia, like, fires up and it, it definitely comes out in these cold readings that we do. If you listen to any of our promos, then you know that that is true. <laughs> but yeah, so this is, we've been doing this now on our own for four years, just reading these and like loving it every time we have the opportunity. And we were camping a few days ago or a couple weeks ago and holy shit, like we're like, this is a podcast. <laughs> well, so people have said when we talk about, oh yeah, go go camping and read uh, read books around the campfire. People have said, oh, that sounds like so much fun. I'd love to come camping with you guys. And then on this camping trip a few days ago, a week ago, whenever it yeah. was, um, we talked about, oh, maybe this could be a podcast. And I had the thought, although I don't think I had, I expressed it out loud, that well, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. People have talked about wishing they could hear this thing around the campfire. So, um, so now we are here. <laughs> yeah, uh, he read a Poirot, and I was like, that would make a good play, or like I would just listen to it. Is it in public domain? <laughs> we found out that one is not, at least the like version we read. So then we were like, what if we just read stories that are in the public domain? Because, you know, then we don't have rights. <laughs> which we don't have to worry we about. We don't get sued. Don't have to worry about getting sued by people who think we're... Um, destroying their destroying literature. Destroying their beautiful work. 
They're beautiful, beautiful work. It is beautiful work, but we're going to have a really good time reading it. Because, again, most of these were written over 100 years ago. So there's some words that mean different things or new things or are words I've never seen, like the French words. And, (laughs) And, um, yeah, we're just going to, like, do this. I mean, do you want to say anything else about why we do this? No, I mean, why? I, realistically, why we do this is because, um, as you all know, uh, I mean, I suppose unless you're listening back to this in like 15 years, God, wouldn't that be cool? Oh my God. If you are listening back to this in 15 years. Get in touch with us. Um, send, yeah, a phone call, email something, because that would be awesome. But assuming you're listening to this right around the time we're recording and releasing it, you know that um, the the world is kind of a confined place right now, and uh, people who work in the arts like we do are having trouble finding any sort of outlet or connection with the outside world. And honestly, this is, as much as anything, just an excuse to keep doing Something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we get to read stories out loud, so we're like, well, let's not just do it for ourselves, because that's selfish. Let's share it with the world. So, uh... Or at least with the six of you who listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> so, on that merry little note, uh, Heather, what, what am I reading today? So, to make sure that we are cold reading, uh, we're each going to pick the stories for the other. So, I have a sign, because Agatha Christie was the, um creator like the the muse for all of this uh i picked an agatha christie and it's one that's in uh public domain and it is a poirot because ken doesn't mean poirot i'm so excited (laughs) for this um so this is the adventure of the egyptian tomb by Mm. agatha christie let's do it i think the cat's trying to get in This is now going to be part of the podcast for sure. Why are you squeaking at the door? Lina. It was her. <laughs> oh, here she is. Here's 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 our muse in life. This is Lina. You'll probably hear her a lot. She is our angel and our sweet. She sits around the campfire with us. She really does. She even got in the tent once. All right, Pooter. You go down. Okay, we're going to read a story now. You can stay and listen. All right, let's light the campfire. The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb by Agatha Christie. Lina, you're going to be so loud. She's purring. (laughs) I'm so happy about it. I have always considered that one of the most thrilling and dramatic of the many adventures I have shared with Poirot was that of our investigation into the strange series of deaths which followed upon the discovery and opening of the tomb of King Menhera. Just don't open the tomb. Oh my god, like, have they seen the mummy? Well, they haven't. They haven't. (laughs) The mummy is not in public domain. It's also like, oh, don't watch the Tom Cruise one, though. I've heard it's terrible. (laughs) I haven't seen it. I will not comment. Hard upon the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun by Lord Carnarvon, Sir John Willard, and Mr. Bliebner of New York. 
I hope I said any of those names oh, right. Mr. Fliebner, he's my favorite. Pursuing their excavations not far from Cairo, in the vicinity of the pyramids of Giza, came unexpectedly on a series of funeral chambers. The greatest interest was aroused by their discovery. The tomb appeared to be that of King Menhera, one of those shadowy kings of the 8th dynasty, when the old kingdom was falling into decay. Little was known about this period, and the discoveries were fully reported in the newspapers. What's a shadowy? Why are they shadowy? Shadowy. Sketchy? Um, sketchy. Yeah. Sketchy, they no were knows. dabbling in black magic, and they were able to turn themselves into shadows, which was super useful you when they were so fighting. You are so full of shit. I don't know why I ever <laughs> asked him anything. Oh my god. Continue. An event soon occurred, which took a profound hold on the public mind. Sir John Willard died quite suddenly of heart failure. Don't open the, the don't tomb. Don't open the tomb. Don't split the party and don't open the tomb. The more sensational newspapers immediately took the opportunity of reviving all the old superstitious stories connected with the ill luck of certain Egyptian treasures. The unlucky mummy at the British Museum, that hoary old chestnut, Ah, sorry. Wait, did they just call the old mummy a whore? No. A hoary chestnut? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That mummy you slept around. Uh, let me start that sentence that, over. I can oh, read it better. That, I have to say, that is my favorite. I hope that was actually like an insult at the time. You hoary chestnut. You hoary chestnut. <laughs> I'm bringing it back. Bring up. Hashtag hoary chestnut. Hashtag hoary chestnut. Hashtag... <laughs> Hashtag slutty Brazil nut. <laughs> Hashtag Karen Cashew. Karen. Oh. <laughs> oh, I said it. <laughs> oh, you went from like sex worker to other political statement. <laughs> I do that. Oh, I was trying to keep it in the realm of. Yeah. I wasn't going the political statement route. I was going the offensive route. I'm taking. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll that. <laughs> sure we will. <laughs> the more sensational newspapers immediately took the opportunity of reviving all the old superstitious stories connected with the ill luck of certain Egyptian treasures. The unlucky mummy at the British Museum, that hoary old chestnut, was dragged out with fresh zest, was quietly denied by the museum, but nevertheless enjoyed all its usual vogue. A fortnight later, two weeks for those of you stateside, a fortnight later, Mr. Bliebner died of acute blood poisoning. Not Mr. Bliebler. Bleep, Bliebner. Bleepner. It's okay. Bliebler is fine. Mr. Bliebler is fine. Oh, he, good. Nothing happened Thank to Bliebler. God, he's my best friend. Bliebner died of acute blood poisoning. Uh, and a few days afterward, a nephew of his shot himself in New York. Uh, the curse of Menhera was the talk of the day, and the magic power of dead and gone Egypt was exalted to a fetish point. A fetish point? Oh, oh. Yeah, uh, it got real kinky. Apparently. <laughs> Ooh, Menhera. <laughs> Were there videos made? They don't have videos. That, wait, no, no, probably not. Yeah. Mm. Maybe some weird paintings. There were postcards. <laughs> some, like, 
Some sketches. Sexy mummy postcards were sent to the soldiers overseas. There you go. That's your next Halloween costume at home. Sexy, Sexy mummy, mummy postcards. Sexy mummy fetish postcards. Um, here's an idea. Uh, if you are listening and have any artistic ability yes. or don't have any artistic ability but want to try, uh, give us a drawing of a sexy mummy postcard and post it to the 5050 Arts Production Facebook page. Yes, please. Um, the our favorite drawing um, will get a 5050 postcard thank you mailed to them, as well as a shout out here on the podcast. And we'll draw our own sexy mummy on the back of that postcard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was then that Poirot received a brief note from Lady Willard, widow of the dead archaeologist asking him to go and see her at her house in Kensington Square. I accompanied him. Lady Willard was a tall, thin woman dressed in deep mourning. Her haggard face bore eloquent testimony to her recent grief. Mm. It is kind of you to have come so promptly, Monsieur Poirot. How kind of you to yes. let me come. I don't know where exactly she's from. She sounds a bit, um... She's a little lilty. Trans Transatlantic. Transatlantic. That's all right. She didn't go full British. I'll save that for later. Yeah. Uh, where were we? Yes, it is kind of you to have come so promptly, Monsieur Poirot. I am at your service, Lady Willard. You wish to consult me? You are, I am aware, a detective, but it is not only as a detective that I wish to consult you. You are a man of original views, I know. You have imagination, experience of the world. Tell me, Monsieur Poirot, what are your views on the supernatural? Ooh. Poirot hesitated for a moment before he replied. He seemed to be considering. Finally, he said... Let us not misunderstand each other, Lady Willard. It is not a general question that you are asking me there. It has a personal application. Has it not? You are referring obliquely to the death of your late husband. That is so, she admitted. You want me to investigate the circumstances of his death? You want me to ascertain yeah. Ah, nope. <clears throat> I want you to ascertain for me. Sometimes, you know how sometimes when you're talking to someone and you start slipping into their speech patterns? <laughs> that's, um, that's what this lady does. This, this lady, uh, she does that. She um, suddenly or became... Or you just lost track of who was talking, which will happen a lot. Which happens a lot because this book doesn't seem to have any he said, she said. <laughs> this book never said. says that's what she said. <laughs> Agatha Christie wasn't into that joke. Well, it wouldn't come around for another 80 years or so. Well, that's what you think. That's what I said. That's what he said. Oh, <laughs> it wouldn't come around for another 80 years or so. That's what he said. Yo. Oh, no. <laughs> that's a long drought. That's, that's oh. a rough, rough patch. I want you to ascertain for me exactly how much is newspaper chatter and how much may be said to be founded in fact. Three deaths, Monsieur Poirot, each one explicable, taken by itself, but taken together, surely an almost unbelievable coincidence, and all within a month of the opening of the tomb. 
It may be mere superstition. It may be some potent curse from the past that operates in ways undreamed of by modern science. The fact remains, three deaths, and I am afraid, Monsieur Poirot, horribly afraid. It may not yet be the end. Who's next? For whom do you fear? For my son. When the news of my husband's death came, I was ill. My son, who has just come down from Oxford, went out there. He brought the, the body home, but now he has gone out again, in spite of my prayers and entreaties. He is yeah, so... Yeah, thoughts and prayers don't work. Nope. <clears throat> <laughs> just, 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 I'm, I'm just going to keep just keeping it Just keeping it political. Just, just keeping, keeping it, it political. political. Thank you, Agatha Christie. Uh, he is so fascinated by the work that he intends to take his father's place and carry on the system of excavations. You may think me a foolish, credulous woman, but, Monsieur Poirot, I am afraid. Supposing that the spirit of the dead king is not yet appeased. Perhaps to you I seem to be talking nonsense. No, indeed, Lady Willard, said Poirot quickly. I, too, believe in the force of uh, superstition, one of the greatest forces in the world has ever known. I looked at him in surprise. I should never have credited Poirot with being superstitious, but the little man was obviously in earnest. What you really demand is that I shall protect your son? I will do my utmost to keep him from harm. Yes. In the ordinary way, but against an occult influence? In volumes of Middle Ages, Lady Willard, you will find many ways of counteracting black magic. Perhaps they knew more than we moderns with all our boasted science. Now, let us come to facts that I may have guidance. Your husband had always been a devoted Egyptologist, hadn't he? So they were doing black magic. You yes. You weren't lying at the beginning. No. No, I Did told you. Did you know you were lying? <laughs> you just got lucky. What? <laughs> yes. Yes. Continue. That is black what? magic in itself. Uh, yes. From his youth upwards. He was one of the greatest living authorities upon the subject. But uh, Mr. Bliebner, I understand, was more or less of an amateur. Oh, quite. He was a very wealthy man who dabbled freely in any subject that happened to take his fancy. Must be nice. My husband managed... fun, baby. <laughs> right. My husband managed to interest him in Egyptology, and it was his money that was so useful in financing the expedition. And the nephew? What do you know of his tastes? Was he with the party at all? I do not think so. In fact, I never knew of his existence till I read of his death in the paper. I do not think he and Mr. Bliebner can have been at all intimate. He never spoke of having any relations. Who are the other members of the party? Party. 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 I don't know. French <laughs> don't, accents are hard. Don't ask me. Well, there is uh, Dr. Toswill, a minor official connected with the British Museum. I love British names. 
Mr. Schneider of the Metropolitan Museum of New York, a young American secretary, Dr. Ames, who accompanies the expedition in his professional capacity, and Hassan, my husband's devoted native servant. Oh, Lord. I hope this doesn't get sketchy. Oh, God. Do you remember the name of the American secretary? Harper, I think, but I cannot be sure. He had not been with Mr. Bliebner very long, I know. He was a very pleasant young fellow. Thank you, Lady Willard. If there is anything else, for the moment, nothing. Leave it now in my hands, and be assured that I will do all that is humanly possible to protect your son. They were not exactly reassuring words, and I observed Lady Willard wince as he uttered them. Yet, at the same time, the fact that he had not poo-pooed her fears <laughs> seemed in itself to be a relief to her. Poo-pooed? That just seems like not the best way to describe this poor grieving widow and who was worried about her son. The he, fact, didn't, he didn't poo-poo her fears. The fact that he had not pooped on her fears <laughs> seemed in itself to be a relief to her. Poo-pooed. Oh, Poo-poo, madame. Oh, Hastings. You, you foolish, you foolish woman. You poo-pooed that poo-poo. paragraph, Hastings. That paragraph was going so well, and then you and then poo-pooed. You poo-pooed. <laughs> poo-pooed it. Poo-pooed. Poo-pooed it. Lina, you know about poo-pooing. Yes, you do. Poo-poo. Yum, yucky. This, uh, this story came out right about the same time as Winnie the Pooh. It did, that's it, right. It did, in no, fact. It actually that's did. actually true. That's so, maybe they were talking about poo, like poo corner. So, uh, Lady Willard was very glad that Poirot didn't throw a stuffed Winnie the Pooh at her. Yeah, because that's just... Because that would have been condescending. Yeah. For my part, I had never before suspected that Poirot had so deep a vein of superstition in his nature. I tackled him on the subject as we went (laughs) homewards. Hastings! His manner was grave earnest. These two, um, what, Victorian gentlemen? They're not Victorian. (laughs) When are they? I don't remember. Uh, These two well-dressed gentlemen well-dressed walking British home. British people in the early and, 1800s. Yeah. And Hastings uh, just tackles him. He just tackles <laughs> him with a Winnie the Pooh. With a Winnie the Pooh. He just poo-pooed him. <laughs> but yes, Hastings, I believe in these things. Now get off me, you stupid bastard. <laughs> I believe in these things. You must not underwrite the force of superstition. What are we going to do about it? Toujours pratique, the good Hastings. Eh bien. To begin with, we are going to cable to New York for fuller details of young Mr. Bliebner's death. Bliebner is a weird word to say in a French accent. Bliebner is a Bliebner. weird word to say in all accents. It really is. Bliebner. Bliebner. Bleep, bleep. It sounds like, uh, like alien. Like Danger, Will Robinson. Bliebner. Bliebner. Mr. Bliebner. Sounds like a Doctor Who character. It does. He duly sent off his cable. The reply was full and precise. Young Rupert Bliebner had been in low water for several years. Well, he should have just stepped out of it then. (laughs) He just wading in a puddle. Just standing in ankle-deep water. I hope he was wearing, um, I hope he was wearing, like, high-water capris. And wellies. (laughs) 
He had been a beachcomber and a remittance man in several South Seas islands, but had returned to New York two years ago, where he had rapidly sunk lower and lower. The most significant thing, to my mind, was that he had recently managed to borrow enough money to take him to Egypt. I have a good friend there I can borrow from, he had declared. Here, however, his plans had gone awry. He had turned to New York, cursing his skinflint of an uncle, who cared more for the bones of dead and gone kings than his own flesh and blood. It was during his sojourn in Egypt that the death of Sir John Willard occurred. Rupert had plunged once more into his life of dissipation in New York, and then, without warning, he had committed suicide, <gasps> leaving behind him a letter which contained some curious phrases. It seemed written in a sudden fit of remorse. He referred to himself as a leper and an outcast, and the letter ended by declaring that such as he were better dead. Aww. A shadowy theory leapt into my brain. I had never really believed in the vengeance of a long-dead Egyptian king. I saw here a more modern crime. Supposing this young man had decided to do away with his uncle, preferably by poison. By mistake, Sir John Willard receives a fatal dose. The young man returns to New York, haunted by his crime. The news of his uncle's death reaches him. He realizes how unnecessary his crime has been, and stricken with remorse, takes his own life. I outline my solution to Poirot. He was interested. Was he, though? He's going to be like, mm-hmm, Hastings, nice try. Just, just follow me, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> It is ingenious what you have thought there. Decidedly, it is ingenious. It may even be true, but you leave out a count of... You leave out of count the fatal influence of the tomb. I shrugged my shoulders. You still think that has something to do with it? So much so, mon ami, that we start for Egypt tomorrow. <gasps> They're going to Egypt. What? I cried, astonished. <laughs> I have said it. The expression of conscious heroism spread over Poirot's face. Then he groaned. But, oh, he lamented, the sea, the hateful sea. Oh, Poirot's, like, downfall is seasickness. Poirot gets seasick. <laughs> Poirot's, like, got a tummy ache. <laughs> oh, poor dude. You're not going to like the boat. Yeah, yeah, but I'm sure he's been on, I mean, he's been on boats. He knows he's, it's coming. At least it's not boats. like a he surprise. Kn- yeah. And when you're, like, the world's most famous detective, you got to travel, and that was the only way, then, if you well, wanted to go anywhere else. At the very least, he's in England now. Yeah. And he's from Belgium. From Belgium, so he's done so it. So he's done it at least once. A few times. Probably yeah. a few times. Yeah. So, oh, I'm so excited they're going to Egypt. I've wanted to go to Egypt my whole life. Like, as a kid, I was obsessed with Egyptian mythology, and it's, like, one of the places I've never been, and you've been. You're obsessed with Egyptian mythology, and you don't even know about the shadowy kings? I mean... I want to learn more about the shadowy kings. <laughs> no, I know about like tombs and like all the black magic and ideas. I just didn't know that you like called it. Like that was that was ingenious. I'm it's smart. It's ingenious. Ingenious. It uh, I was exercising my little gray cells. <laughs> Your little gray cells. The little the little gray cells. Is that? That's. Gray cells. The little gray cells. The brain cells. Brain cells. But no, they are the the little gray cells. 
Poirot says it all the damn time. I know. I know. I just, you were saying it. <laughs> the little the little gray cells. I'm just so excited for them to be in Egypt. You know it this tomb is fucking haunted. Was a week later. Okay. Okay. Now they're in Egypt. Ta-da! Beneath our feet was the golden sand of the desert. The hot sun poured down overhead. Poirot, the picture of misery, wilted by my side. <laughs> the little man was not a good traveler. Our four days voyage from... He keeps calling him a little man. How rude. <laughs> well... A little man. He's like the most brilliant man in the world. And he's just like, he's a little man with a funny mustache. <laughs> he, well, you know, Hastings feels... He has an inferiority complex. That's for sure. He's just... He's, he's always he's just, just trolling the ladies and like... He's bullying Poirot with short jokes. And tackling to make him. him and... To make him feel better about yeah. himself. All right, that's fair. And tackling him. Okay. Because uh, Hastings... Being a giant himself can easily... He must be. I don't know. <clears throat> Where was I? Little man. Was not a good traveler. The little man was not a good traveler. Our four days voyage from Marseille had been one long agony to him. So they were in France. Well, they traveled from France from, from to England Egypt. To they probably went Egypt. England to France yeah, to Egypt. That makes sense. Unless there was something early on that I've forgotten where they were already in France for no, some reason. I don't remember it. All it right. didn't happen. Uh, he had landed at Alexandria, the wrath, a wraith of his former self. Even his usual neatness had deserted him. <laughs> We had arrived in Cairo and had driven out at once to the Mena House Hotel, right in the shadow of the pyramids. I'm so jealous. The charm of Egypt had laid hold of me. Not so Poirot. Dressed precisely the same as in London, he carried a small clothes brush in his pocket and waged an unceasing war on the dust which accumulated on his apparel. And my boots, he wailed. Regard them, Hastings. My boots of the neat patent leather, usually so smart and shining. See, the sand is inside them, which is painful, and outside them, which outrages the eyesight. Also the heat. It causes my mustaches to become limp. But limp... <laughs> Look at the Sphinx, I urged. Not Even I can feel the mystery and charm it exhales. <laughs> Not a limp mustache. Oh. Uh, this is like grumpy dad with his limp mustache and Hastings has become a 12-year-old. Look at the He's, Sphinx! Look at the Sphinx! Look at the Sphinx! Hastings is me. If I ever get to Egypt, I'm going to be my 12-year-old self. And you'll be stroking your mustache. <laughs> You were literally just I was literally stroking just your stroking mustache. my mustache. I need to shave. Oh, yeah. Is, you got the quarantine beard rough. happening hard. This is rough. It's kind of itchy, too. Um, Poirot looked at it discontentedly. It has not the air of happy, he declared. How could it have buried in sand in that untidy fashion? Ah, this cursed sand. Come now. There's a lot of sand in Belgium, I reminded him, mindful of a holiday spent at Nox-sur-Mer in the midst of Les Dunes Impeccables, as the guidebooks had phrased it. 
Not in Brussels, declared Poirot. He gazed at the pyramids thoughtfully. It is true that they at least are of a shape solid and geometrical, but their surface is of an unevenness most unpleasing, and the palm trees, I like them not. Not even do they plant them in rows. OCD. This dude I understand. has OCD. I bad. understand it. I, that is, <laughs> that's freaking real. Like, I don't think I would be that bad because I'd be like, I mean, still, it's freaking pyramids. Like, mm-hmm. how did they even build them? But he's sitting there going like, they're not even. It's not even. But I, I, I feel that pain. I, the palm trees aren't in straight rows. He, he would love LA. <laughs> Everything's... Straight line, on a grid. Straight line. Straight line. Palm trees and straight lines. But, oh, he's having a rough go at Her- it. Hercule Poirot proving that OCD is actually a superpower. It really is. I mean, I know I'm a superhero. <laughs> I cut short his lamentations by suggesting that we should start for the camp. We were to ride there on camels, and the beasts were patiently kneeling, waiting for us to mount, in charge of several picturesque boys headed by a voluble dragoman? Voluble dragoman? A dragoman. What's a voluble dragoman? I'm gonna look it up. Okay. Where's me phone? There we go. Ooh, yay, it's our first look up. A voluble dragoman. Boom, 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 boom. No, no, don't do ten more, don't do ten, more than ten seconds. We'll have to oh, pay yeah. for it. Where is it? Voluble. 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 Dragoman. Dragoman. Voluble. Adjective. A person taking, talking fluently, readily, or incessantly. Oh, cool. So, chatty. Chatty. Chatty, motherfucker. A chatty interpreter or guide. Of Turkish, Arabic, or Persian descent. Great. Okay. There you go. A chatty guide. So. (laughs) That was a really fancy way to say the tour guide liked to talk a lot. (laughs) We were to ride there on camels, and the beasts were patiently kneeling, waiting for us to mount, in charge of several picturesque boys, headed by a chatty guide. Chatty guide, a voluble dragoman. I passed over the spectacle of Poirot on a camel. He started by groans and lamentations and ended by shrieks, gesticulations, and invocations to the Virgin Mary and every saint in the calendar. (laughs) I'm just envisioning this little mustache man on a camel being like, oh, Joseph and like Mary and Jesus Christ. So you know what I'm, what I'm, I keep bouncing, I keep bouncing back and forth between um, seeing uh, David Suchet on a camel, yes, cursing to Mother Mary and um, Kenneth Branagh, <laughs> <laughs> falling his falling his well groomed ass right off that camel. Yes, yep, <laughs> like the the new Poirot. Yes, with that beautiful, beautiful, with that beautiful mustache. absurd mustache, and he falls <laughs> down and like has to Just pray dirt to all in the mustache, all the sand in the mustache. I wonder if there's a saint of mustaches. Oh my gosh. Who is shit. the patron? If there is not a patron saint of mustaches, I would like to nominate Wilford Brimley. <laughs> patron saint of mustaches. Wilgefortis? Wilgefortis is a female saint of the Catholic Church whose legend 
rose in the 14th century and whose distinguishing feature is a large beard. It's a bearded lady. How is the patron saint? Okay, okay. The patron saint of mustaches is a woman. <laughs> it's a bearded lady. Saint Wilgefortis. Oh my God. Amazing. Oh shit. St. Wilgefortis promises relief from the burden of violent and abusive husbands. So she's the patron saint of mustaches and domestic violence, like anti-domestic violence. I mean, this this lady's fucking cool. <laughs> uh, note to self, write a play, play about St. <laughs> Wilgefortis. And noted. I'm keeping it up. Done. <laughs> Thank you. I that idea is trademarked, by the way. Trademark. <laughs> Hashtag... Ours. <laughs> Hashtag don't steal my good ideas. <laughs> so there's so there's so there's Kenneth Branagh, David Suchet, and a bearded lady, and a bearded lady falling off camels and screaming to Saint Wilga. Well, she's Wilga screaming Fortis. to herself. Yes, <laughs> she's screaming to herself. The, the two men are screaming at the woman because you know. They're asking her for help. She's still up on the they're, camel. They're screaming, like, as in, like, help, help us. Help us, help us. And she Our picks mustaches. them. And she picks them both up by the mustaches and sets them back on their camels. Beautiful. In the end, he descended ignom... Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to start that one again. Do it. In the end, he descended ignominiously and finished Ooh. the journey on a diminutive donkey. Continuing the religious iconography. All right. This now is... Poirot is Jesus. I mean, kind of is. <laughs> I must admit that a trotting camel is no joke for an amateur. I was stiff for several days. Oh, poor Hastings. At last we neared the scene of the excavations. A sunburnt man with a gray beard in white clothes and wearing a helmet came to meet us. Monsieur Poirot and Captain Hastings, we received your cable. I'm sorry that there is no one to meet you in Cairo. An unforeseen event occurred which completely disorganized our plans. Mm. Poirot paled. His hand, which had stolen to his clothes brush, stayed its course. Not another death, he breathed. Yes. Sir Guy Willard, I cried. No, Captain Hastings, my American colleague, Mr. Schneider. And the cause? demanded Poirot. Tetanus. <laughs> I blanched. That is so All unexciting. around me, I seemed to feel an atmosphere of evil, subtle and menacing. A horrible thought flush. As I started speaking in tongues. <laughs> Subtle and menacing, a horrible thought flashed across me, supposing I were the next. Mon Dieu, said Poirot in a very low voice. Oh, sorry. Mon Dieu, said Poirot in a very low voice. I do not understand this. It is horrible. Tell me, monsieur. There is no doubt that it was tetanus? I believe not, but Dr. Ames will tell you more than I can do. Mm -mm, He's not going to be alive much longer. Ah, of course. You are not the doctor. My name is Toswill. This, then, was the British expert. Just, well, that was not a British accent. Oh, it was, it was a great, great 
great choice, though. <laughs> this, then, was the British expert. Clearly, my accents have no real bearing on where these people are no. geographically located. Yeah, and since, like, people moved around a lot since, then. Since Hastings has been American this whole time, who it's cares? This, then, was the British expert described by Lady Willard as being a minor official in the British Museum. There was something at once grave and steadfast about him that took my fancy. If you will come with me, continued Dr. Toswill. So he is a doctor. But he's not like a medical doctor. Oh, he's a PhD. He's, That's yeah. not a real doctor. <laughs> if you will come with me, continued Dr. Toswill, I will take you to Sir Guy Willard. He is most anxious to be informed as soon as you should arrive. We were taken across the camp to a large tent. Dr. Toswill lifted up the flap and we entered. Three men were sitting inside. Monsieur Poirot and Captain Hastings have arrived, Sir Guy, said Toswill. This guy's name is Sir Guy. Sir Guy of Gisborne. Sir Guy. Sir Guy of Gisborne. He's about to have a sword fight to the death with Robin Hood. I mean, or he's just like I've the most bro dude of all time. Like, literally, his name is Dude Dude. Hey, Guy. Sir Guy. Hey, Guy. Hey, Guy Guy. Hey, Guy. Hey, dude, hey, dude. Monsieur Poirot and Captain Hastings have arrived. Hey, guy, guy. Guy, guy. Yeah, if he was a, like, <clears throat> a mafia boss, his name would be guy, guy. Hey, guy, guy. Guy, guy. The youngest of the three men jumped up and came forward to greet us. There was a certain impulsiveness in his manner, which reminded me of his mother. He was not nearly so sunburnt as the others. And that fact, coupled with a certain haggardness around the eyes, made him look older than his 22 years. He was clearly endeavoring to bear up under severe mental strain. He introduced his two companions, Dr. Ames, a capable-looking man of 30-odd, with a touch of graying hair at his temples, and Mr. Harper, the secretary, a pleasant, lean young man wearing the national insignia of horn-rimmed spectacles. After a few minutes' desultory conversation, the latter went out, and Dr. Toswell followed him. We were left alone with Sir Guy and Dr. Ames. Please don't ask any questions, you... Wow. I'll rewind the tape. Please ask any questions you want to ask, Monsieur Poirot, said Willard. We are utterly dumbfounded at this strange series of disasters, but it isn't... It can't be anything but coincidence. There was a nervousness about his manner, which rather belied the words. I saw that Poirot was studying him keenly. Your art is really in this work, Sir Guy? Rather, no matter what happens or what comes of it, the work is going on. Make up your mind to that. Poirot wheeled round to the other. What have you to say to that, Monsieur le Docteur? Well, drawled the doctor, I'm not for quitting myself. I love that he's from the Wild West. Well, that was the first accent I, I could come up with it. that was a drawl. I like it. Well, I'm not for quitting myself. This is, this is where Wilford Brimley comes in. Yes, there you go. He's in. Poirot made 
one of those expressive grimaces of his. Then, évidemment, we must find out just how we stand. When did Mr. Snyder's death take place? Three days ago. You are sure it was tetanus? Dead sure. <laughs> it couldn't have been a case of strychnine poisoning, for instance? No, Monsieur Poirot, I see what you're getting at. But it was a clear case of tetanus. Did you not inject antiserum? Certainly we did, said the doctor dryly. Every conceivable thing that could be done was tried. Had you the antiserum with you? No, we procured it from Cairo. Have there been any cases of tetanus in the camp? No, not one. Are you certain that the death of Mr. Bliebner was not due to tetanus? Absolutely plumb certain. <laughs> the more this guy talks, the more I think this is the this right really choice. I think this really is. Plumb certain? Absolutely plumb certain. Plumb certain. He had a scratch upon his thumb, which became poisoned, and septicemia set in. Uh, it sounds pretty much the same to a layman, I dare say, but the two things are entirely different. Then we have four deaths, all totally dissimilar. One art failure, one blood poisoning, one suicide, and one tetanus. Exactly, Monsieur Poirot. Are you certain that there is nothing which might link the four together? I don't quite understand you. I will put it plainly. Was any act committed by those four men which might seem to denote disrespect to the spirit of men era? The doctor gazed at Poirot in astonishment. <laughs> You're talking through your hat, Monsieur Poirot. Surely you've not been guided to believe in all that fool talk. Absolute nonsense, muttered Willard angrily. Mm -hmm. Poirot remained placidly immovable, blinking a little out of his green cat's eyes. So you do not believe it, Monsieur le Docteur? No, sir, I do not, declared the doctor emphatically. I am a scientific man, and I believe only what science teaches. Was there no science then in ancient Egypt? asked Poirot softly. He did not wait for a reply, and indeed Dr. Ames seemed rather at a loss for the moment. No, no, do not answer me, but tell me this. What do the native workmen think? I guess, said Dr. Ames, that... Where white folks lose their heads, natives aren't going to be far behind. I'll admit that they're getting what you might call scared, but they've no cause to be. Because they're smarter than you, you dumbass. <laughs> Respect them. Respect their history. I wonder, said Poirot, noncommittally. Sir Guy leant forward. Surely, he cried incredulously, you cannot believe in... Oh... But the thing's absurd. You can know nothing of ancient Egypt if you think that. Um, this guy knows nothing of ancient Egypt. Poirot knows about the Shadow Kings. 
Yeah. And the dark magic. Yeah. And the sexy mummies. And this guy's like, oh, no, it can't be true. I'm like, have you not read anything about, like, Egyptian mythology? Have you never seen a sexy mummy? Have you? Have you never experienced Halloween at a college? <laughs> guy guy? Guy guy? Come on, guy dude, guy. Dude bro? Get with it, dude. Man. For answer, Poirot produced a little book from his pocket, an ancient tattered volume. As he held it out, I saw its title, The Magic of the Egyptians and Chaldeans. Then wheeling round, he strode out of the tent. The doctor stared at me. What is his little idea? The phrase, so familiar on Poirot's lips, made me smile as it came from another. I don't know exactly, I confessed. He's got some plan for exercising the evil spirits, I believe. Oh, Poirot's going to have a seance. He's going to do an exorcism. Ah! Call an old priest and a young priest. I went in search of Poirot and found him talking to the lean-faced young man who had been the late Mr. Bliebner's secretary. No, Mr. Harper was saying. I've only been six months with the expedition. Yes, I, I knew Mr. Bliebner's affairs pretty well. Can you recount to me anything concerning his nephew? He turned up here one day, not a bad-looking fellow. I had never met him before, but some of the others had. Ames, I think, and Schneider. Uh, the old man wasn't at all pleased to see him. They were at it in no time, hammer and tongs. Not a cent, the old man shouted. Not a cent now or when I'm dead. I intend to leave my money to the furtherance of my life's work. I've been talking it over with Mr. Schneider today. And a bit more of the same. Young Bliebner lit out for Cairo right away. Was he in perfectly good health at the time? The old one? No, the young one. I believe he did mention there was something wrong with him, but it couldn't have been anything serious, or I should have remembered. Uh, one more thing. Has Mr. Bliebner left a will? So far as we know, he has not. Mm -hmm. Are you remaining with the expedition, Mr. Harper? No, sir, I'm not. I'm for New York as soon as I can square things here. You may laugh if you like, but I'm not going to be this blasted old Menhera's next victim. He'll get me if I stop here. The young man wiped perspiration from his brow. Poirot turned away. Over his shoulder, he said with a peculiar smile, Remember, he got one of his victims in New York. <laughs> Fucking rude! Oh, damn! He just said... Yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> oh, hell, said Mr. Harper forcibly. Well, I think is I think, a, I'm loving him in this one. I think oh, hell is Agatha Christie for motherfucker. <laughs> oh, hell. That young man is nervous, said Poirot thoughtfully. He is on the edge, but absolutely on the edge. I glanced at Poirot curiously, but his enigmatical Yep, but his enigmatical smile told me nothing. In company with Sir Guy Willard and Dr. Toswill, we were taken round the excavations. The principal finds 
Hmm. The principal finds had been removed to Cairo, but some of the tomb furniture was extremely interesting. The enthusiasm of the young baronet was obvious, but I fancied that I detected a shade of nervousness in his manner, as though he could not quite escape from feeling, uh, from the feeling of menace in the air. As he entered the tent, which had been assigned to us for a wash before joining the evening meal, a tall, dark figure in white robes stood aside to let us pass with a graceful gesture and murmured a greeting in Arabic. Poirot stopped. "'You are Hassan, the late Sir John Willard's servant?' Jesus Christ, there are so many characters in this book! I know! <laughs> You're so good at it! I served my lord, Sir John, now I serve his son. He took a step nearer to us and lowered his voice. I'm not going to attempt an Arabic accent. Nope. Yeah, <laughs> don't. I had to do that in school once. You are a wise one, they say, learned in dealing with evil spirits. Let the young master depart from here. There is evil in the air around us. And with an abrupt gesture, not waiting for reply... He strode away. Mm -hmm. Evil in the air, muttered Poirot. Yes, I feel it. Our meal was hardly a cheerful one. The floor was left to Dr. Toswill, who discoursed at length upon Egyptian antiquities. Just as we were preparing to retire to rest, Sir Guy caught Poirot by the arm and pointed. A shadowy figure was moving amidst the tents. It was no human one. I recognized distinctly the dog-headed figure I had seen carved on the walls of the tomb. My blood literally froze at the sight, and I died, because that is what would happen if your blood literally, literally. froze. Don't, Jesus, don't well, use the word literally when you don't mean literally. You mean figuratively. But that's, that's. Agatha Christie, I mean, Hastings would say literally, because Hastings... I know, I'm mad at Hastings. <laughs> well, and, like, so Agatha Christie, like, is is painting a very good picture of, of Hastings. Of who, who Hastings is, yeah. who is clearly a terrible person with no respect for the English language. Literally means literally. English if language you, is messed up. If your blood didn't literally freeze, you mean figuratively. If your blood literally froze, that is the end of the story. Maybe he's dead. Keep reading. If he's dead, how is he telling us the story? Someone will take over. <laughs> Mon Dieu, murmured Poirot, because I had just died. <laughs> Crossing himself vigorously. Anubis, the jackal-headed, the god of departing souls. Shit, what did Dr. Toswell sound like? Someone is hoaxing us, cried Dr. Toswill, rising indignantly to his feet. It went into your tent, Harper, muttered Sir Guy, as his, his face dreadfully pale. No, said Poirot, shaking his head. Into that of Dr. Ames. Uh-oh. The doctor stared at him incredulously. Then, repeating Dr. Toswill's words, he cried... Someone is hoaxing us. Come, we'll soon catch this fellow. 
He dashed energetically in pursuit of the shadowy apparition. I followed him. So I didn't die. So he used literally it's getting wrong. Good. It's keep, keep going. I followed him. But search as we would, we could find no trace of any living soul having passed that way. We returned, somewhat disturbed in mind, to find Poirot taking energetic measures in his own way to ensure his personal safety. He was busily surrounding our tent with various diagrams and inscriptions which he was drawing in the sand. I recognized the five-pointed star or pentagon many times repeated. As was his wont, Poirot was, at the same time, delivering an impromptu lecture on witchcraft and magic in general, white magic as opposed to black, with various references to the Kaw and the Book of the Dead thrown in. The Book of the Dead! The Book of the Dead! Ah! It appeared to excite the liveliest contempt from Dr. Toswill, who drew me aside, literally snorting with rage. <laughs> he was literally snorting with rage. Well, that's entirely that possible. You can actually... Can you? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was good. Good, good. Do that. Balderdash, sir, he exclaimed angrily. Pure balderdash. The man's an imposter. He doesn't know the difference between the superstitions of the Middle Ages and the beliefs of ancient Egypt. Never have I heard such a hodgepodge of ignorance and credulity. I claimed the excited I calmed the excited expert and joined Poirot. Oh, my sinuses are all messed up now. I calmed the excited expert and joined Poirot in the tent. My little friend was beaming cheerfully. We can now sleep in peace, he declared happily. And I can do this some, and I can do with some sleep. My head, it aches abominably. Ah, for a good tisane. As though in answer to prayer, the flap of the tent was lifted and Hassan appeared, bearing a steaming cup which he offered to Poirot. It proved to be chamomile tea, a beverage of which he is inordinately fond. Having thanked Hassan and refused his offer for another cup for myself, we were left alone once more. I stood at the door of the tent some time after, undressing, looking out over the desert." A wonderful place, I said aloud, and a wonderful work. I can feel the fascination, this desert life, this probing into the heart of a vanished civilization. Surely, Poirot, you must feel the charm. I got no answer, and I turned a little annoyed. My annoyance was quickly changed to concern. Poirot was lying back across the rude couch, his face horribly convulsed. Beside him was the empty cup. I rushed to his side, then dashed out and across the camp to Dr. Ames' tent. Dr. Ames, I cried, come at once. What's the matter? said the doctor, appearing in pajamas. My friend, he's ill, dying, the chamomile tea. Don't let Hassan leave the camp. Like a flash, the doctor ran to our tent. Poirot was lying as I left him. Extraordinary, cried Ames. Looks like a seizure, or what did you say about something he drank? He picked up the empty cup. Only I did not drink it, said a placid voice. We turned in amazement. Poirot was sitting up on the bed. (laughs) He was smiling. 
No, he said gently. I did not drink it. While my good friend Hastings was apostrophizing the night, I took the opportunity of pouring it, not down my throat, but into a little bottle. That little bottle will go to the analytical chemist. No, as the doctor made a sudden movement, as a sensible man, you will understand that violence will be of no avail. During Hastings' brief absence to fetch you, I have had time to put the bottle in safekeeping. Ah, quick, Hastings, hold him. I misunderstood Poirot's anxiety. Eager to save my friend, I flung myself in front of him, but the doctor's swift movement had another meaning. His hand went to his mouth. A smell of bitter almonds filled the air, and he swayed forward and fell. Ooh. Another victim, said Poirot gravely. But at last, perhaps it is the best way. He has three deaths on his head. Dr. Ames, I cried, stupefied, but I thought you believed in some occult influence. Ooh. You misunderstood me, Hastings. What I meant was that I believe in the ter terrific force of superstition. Once get it firmly established that a series of deaths are supernatural, and you might also stab a man in broad daylight, and it will still be put down to the curse. So strongly is the instinct of the supernatural implanted in the human race. I suspected from the first that a man was taking advantage of that instinct. The idea came to him, I imagine, with the death of Sir John Willard. A fury of superstition arose at once. As far as I could see, nobody could derive any particular profit from Sir John's death. Mr. Bleibner, 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 Justin Bieber was a different case. <laughs> He was a man of great baby, wealth. Baby, baby. Ah. The information I received from New York contained several suggestive points. To begin with, young Bliebner was reported to have said he had a good friend in Egypt from whom he could borrow. It was tacitly understood that he meant his uncle, but it seemed to me that in that case he would have said so outright. The words suggest some boon companion of his own. Another thing, he scraped up enough money to take him to Egypt. His uncle refused outright to advance him a penny, yet he was able to pay their return passage to New York. Someone must have lent him money. All that was very thin, I objected. But there was more, Hastings. There occur often enough words spoken metaphorically which are taken literally. The opposite can happen too. In this case, words which were meant literally were taken metaphorically. Eh, see? He's gonna fix it for you. Mm. Young Bliebner wrote plainly enough, I am a leper. But nobody realized that he shot himself because he believed he had contracted the dead, the dread disease of leprosy. Mm. What? I ejaculated. No! <laughs> it's there. <laughs> why did I use that word? And why did leprosy make him ejaculate? <laughs> He's into some weird shit. That is awful. 
awful. Like, oh, he's like in, like, can you imagine him, like, in the temple, like, when, like, all the, le- hold my hand, da, 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 da. Like, he's oh. doing, he's doing Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> and he just can't like, stop. Oh, it's so good. Oh, oh lepers. Oh, no. Oh, no. Leprosy. Oh, no. No, no, no. Leprosy. No, stop. No, I hate it. Stop. Rewind. Stop. Rewind. 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 But nobody realized that he shot himself because he believed that he had contracted the dread disease of leprosy. What? I exclaimed. No. What? I exclaimed. It was the clever invention of a diabolical mind. Young Bliebner was suffering from some minor skin trouble. He had lived in the South Sea Islands, where the disease is common enough. Ames was a former friend of his, and a well-known medical man. He would never dream of doubting his word. When I arrived here, my suspicions were divided between Harper and Dr. Ames, but I soon realized that only the doctor could have perpetrated and concealed the crimes, and I learned from Harper that he was previously acquainted with young Bliebner. Doubtless, the latter, at some time or another, had made a will or had insured his life in favor of the doctor. The latter saw his chance acquiring wealth. It was easy for him to inoculate Mr. Bliebner with the deadly germs. Then the nephew, overcome with despair at the dread news his friend had conveyed to him, shot himself. Mr. Bliebner, whatever his intentions, had no will. His fortune would pass to his nephew, and from him to the doctor. And Mr. Schneider? We cannot be sure. We knew young Liebner too. Uh, he knew young Liebner too, remember, and may have suspected something. Or again, the doctor may have thought that a further death, motiveless and purposeless, would strengthen the coils of superstition. Furthermore, I will tell you an interesting psychological fact, Hastings: a murder, as always, a strong de- a murderer has always a strong desire to repeat his successful crime. The performance of it grows upon him. Hence my fears for young Willard. The figure of Anubis you saw tonight was Hassan, dressed up by my orders. I wanted to see if I could frighten the doctor, but it would take more than the supernatural to frighten him. I could see that he was not entirely taken in by my pretenses to belief in the occult. The little comedy I played for him did not deceive him. I suspected that he would endeavor to make me the next victim. Ah, but in spite of Le Mer Maudit, the heat abominable, and the annoyances of the sand, the little gray cells still functioned. Mm. <laughs> Poirot proved to be perfectly right in his premises. Young Bliebner, some years ago, in a fit of drunken merriment, had made a jocular will, leaving my cigarette case you admire so much and everything else of which I die possessed with will be principally debts to my good friend Robert Ames, who once saved my life from drowning. 
The case was hushed up as far as possible, and to this day, people talk of the remarkable series of deaths in connection with the tomb of Menhera as a triumphal proof of the vengeance of a bygone king upon the desecrators of his tomb, a belief which, as Poirot pointed out to me, is contrary to all Egyptian belief and thought. Boom. That was a good one. It was just the doctor. It was just, just the doctor. being an asshole. Just being a dick. He's like, hmm, I'm going to pry on these people's superstitions and I'm going to get all their money by doing it. Yeah. Not a good dude, really. Not a good dude. No, not a good dude. And wait, what, plum, he is plum sure. Plum. He sure was plum sure that none of them things were related. Because they weren't, other than the fact that he Other than the fact all. that he killed all of them. <laughs> Dr. Ames. Dr. Ames, what a dick. Dr. Ames. Yeah, Agatha Christie. All the twists and turns. Poirot's always way ahead of the game. The second he starts acting weird, you know... You know he's he's already figured it out. He's already... Like, uh, he he probably didn't even get seasick. He's just like, I'm just gonna act like I'm so sick. Because, like, he's fine on a train. Yeah. Well, but Uh, boats and trains are different. They are, but they're both rocking. They're both rocking. If the train is a rocking... Don't knock on Poirot's door because he's probably throwing up. Don't knock on Poirot's door because he's probably throwing up. If the train is rocking, don't knock on Hastings' door because he's probably trying to get it on with some. He's probably lady ejaculating. On the train. Well, he's, he's probably, probably ejaculating, ejaculating everywhere. Something. Hastings, you ejaculating bastard. <laughs> well, hey, this was episode one of. Uh, Campfire Classics. Episode one, we did it. Episode one of Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I um, think we did a pretty good job. I we got through it. Yeah, we got to the end of that 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 short story. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in uh, for the next episode. If, I don't know what I'm going to be reading. If but. if you did, keep coming back. Um, there are going to be more of these. Um. We don't know what they're going to be yet. Visit our website. There are going to be more of them. 5050artsproduction.com to learn about everything we're doing, including more on the podcast. Uh, you can also become a Patreon uh, donor of ours. So uh, Become a patron. And while Heather pulls up the information on that... Oh. We'll, we'll put that in later. Well, Because uh... it's literally being launched as we're recording. Great. So, uh, here's what's going to happen. Um, we're going to, I'm going to, uh, we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to speak English. And then we're going to take a brief pause in the podcast. Just give me like five seconds of silence. Oh, you want actual silence. Do you you know what silence means? (laughs) Patreon.com slash 5050artsproduction. If you've never used Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 5050artsproduction. You can be one of our first patrons and support us in not just the podcast, but uh, all the other stuff we're creating. So join us. One more time. That's Patreon.com slash 5050artsproduction. Yeah. So ah! 
that is the website. So that is the website where you can uh, come become a patron and um, donate money if you want to support us in further endeavors. Uh, But there are lots of other things you can do to support us in our endeavors. Uh, If you enjoyed this, share it with people. Tell them it was funny or tell them it was interesting or tell them it was These people are weird as hell and you might like it. Or don't tell them anything. Just have them listen to it. Um... Uh, if you have any thoughts for stories that you would like us to read, feel free to send them to 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or send us a message at our Facebook page, 5050 50 and Arts, Arts Production, Production Company. Company. Um, we're looking for more stories and books to read. The, the, the more we get, the more of these episodes we can do. Yeah, bring it on. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey. Well done. All right. That was fun. We'll see you next time. I'm going to eat a marshmallow.